Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. I'm not going to try to summarize uh, yesterday's um, multi-pronged uh, analysis of what I'm calling here metaphorically the fourth horseman. I'm just going to bottom line it uh, for the sake of the conversation. Pictured here is the famous hockey stick curve. I assume by now you are familiar with this terrible icon of our times shown across 24 different indices such as human population levels, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, exploitation of fisheries, destruction of tropical forests, paper consumption, number of motor vehicles, water use, rate of species extinction, and of course global temperature levels. Our disastrous re-engineering of the planet has invoked a new definition of hubris. We live in the age of the Anthropocene. This has taken us, as prominent environmental leader Gus Spett put it 10 years ago, to the edge of the world. Our industrial way of life is, as Derek Jensen says, truly an end game. Yeah, this is apocalyptic stuff. It's captured by this cartoon, I like this cartoon, science and religion after being at war for four centuries. Ben are now in consensus that bad human behavior inevitably brings on the end of the world as we know it. We are, as Ed Ayers put it almost 20 years ago, facing God's last offer. We're facing God's last offer. For the record, here's the most dramatic hockey stick curve of all. We're headed toward five degrees Celsius within our grandchildren's lifetime which will likely render 75% of the planet uninhabitable. As if we can even wrap our heads and hearts around that specter. Here's a popular Earth Day slogan, and it's a good one, really. I'll reflect more on it theologically tomorrow. There's no planet B. Uh, Our urgent task is to stop our home from the slow burn of carbon addiction. Well, let me get personal here for a minute about burning. The realities of climate chaos hit me particularly hard this last December with the Thomas Fire in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. It was California's largest wildfire on record. It scorched more than 280,000 acres. And for us, it was searingly real and sometimes unbearable. An An existential apocalyptic unveiling the kind shared by survivors of hurricanes in Houston and Puerto Rico. Houses were lost and lives and lots of habitat was scorched. 80% of my watershed was burned. On the left in this picture behind the cathedral-like oak in the foreground stood the largest and oldest live oak in our region, a sacred tree if ever there were, just a couple of miles from our house. Under the canopy of this extraordinary 400-year-old native tree, we have regularly prayed, studied, talked, and listened over the past 12 years. We honored her as Grandma Oak, our most revered elder in this place. If you visited us, 
we likely took you to her to pay respects. On Christmas Day, the fires having moved on north to Santa Barbara County, we went to see how this sacred oak grove had fared. Grandma Oak lay in ruins. Her main branches splayed out on the ground in the four directions, still smoldering two weeks after the fire had burned through. I burst into tears. We stood silent for a long time, feeling bereft and orphaned. This tree, older than colonization, a sentinel of the old ways, our axis mundi, was not able to survive the Thomas fire, a beast spawned by climate catastrophe, spawned by anthropogenic hubris. Like I said, it's been personal. A few weeks later, a second wave of disasters came, the inevitable flooding from the scarred hillsides after our first rains in 11 months. Casa de Maria is a beloved Catholic retreat center about 40 minutes from us. The grounds preserve primal canyon oak savanna and rare habitat along San Isidro Creek. It's been a big part of my life for the last quarter century. Ironically, we had evacuated there the first night of the Thomas fire. But Casa Maria was buried under two stories of massive debris flow. They lost 60% of their campus. The venerable chapel in which we and our friends have worshiped and prayed so many times, filled with mud. More than 20 people died in this neighborhood. Over 2,000 structures were destroyed, twice as many as in the fire. When I first saw these pictures, I wept again. This is the burn scar from the Thomas Fire in the Ventura River watershed. As you can see, the fire completely surrounded the Ojai Valley where I live. Our town is indicated by the little yellow symbol. Now look, friends, I'm a fifth generation Californian. I understand that wildfires and subsequent mudslides, they're part of the ecology of my bioregion. I get that. But the unprecedented conditions of aridity and drought that caused this monster fire? That was aberrant. In an interview on day four of the fire, a top California official called it the fastest burning fire he'd ever witnessed. And then he echoed the mantra, it's the new normal. Apparently that is now political code for climate-related weather events. But friends, it's not normal. The Thomas Fire was in fact yet another natural disaster fueled by climate crisis. Here's that hockey stick graph again, this time measuring aridity. A 2016 National Academy of Sciences study concluded that anthropogenic climate change, ACC on this graph, <clears throat> has significantly increased fire season fuel aridity in the western U.S. A UCLA climate scientist noted that the relative humidities during the first two weeks of the Thomas Fire were drier than what you would normally see in the interior desert in the summertime. 1% aridity after the hottest summer on record and then the hottest fall on record. 1% in the winter. Our bioregion went up in smoke. Katrina in 2005 and Sandy in 2012 were not normal. Neither were Maria and Irma last year. This chart from The Economist shows the increase in natural disasters around the world. Yet another hockey stick curve. 
And yet the media still won't name climate plainly as the cause. Or even worse, officials speak of it as if these things are being done to us rather than by us. I want to move to the second aspect of climate and biblical apocalyptic. Here's a second Northcutt quote to set the tone. Do you all still have a microphone? Somebody want to read that out loud? Just grab that, Rodney, if you would, and read that. To be modern is to deny that the weather is political or that political influence, politics influence the climate. To be modern is to deny that there is a God who is the author of nature and culture. What, what? Here's what Northcott's arguing. He says, in traditional cosmologies, including the Bible, climate was political. That is, the action of nations influenced the health of nature. And when people behave badly, the earth behaved badly back. Modernity, on the other hand, banished the notion as superstitious and unscientific. Humans and our technologies, we were now in control. And nature was depersonalized and demystified and at our disposal, no longer an actor in the drama. That paradigm seemed to work OK for a couple of centuries. But now, Northcott argues, we are real realizing anew that the climate is, in fact, political. And it is biting back. Or as eco-philosopher farmer Masanobu Fukuoka put it somewhat more whimsically, if we throw Mother Nature out the window, she comes back in the door with a pitchfork. Which brings me back to that fourth horseman and the notion of nature in insurrection. It turns out that this weird trope from Revelation 6 has an even deeper biblical genealogy. It is an allusion, I believe, to the old story of the plagues of Exodus in the book of uh, plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus, which is what I want to briefly explore as we consider the apocalyptic dimension of judgment. Frankly, friends, this story has been continually on my mind during the Trump regime, and I believe its wisdom has something to teach us as we grasp for metaphors to make sense of our times. Book of Exodus, of course, is another form of ancient resistance literature, much older than apocalyptic, but similarly full of magical tales and archetypal symbolism. The first third of the book is the story of a slave insurrection against Egypt's pharaoh, the paragon of ancient empire. Nowhere in the narrative does pharaoh have a name, suggesting seen one, seen them all, as if domination is generic. The Hebrew heroes, on the other hand, do have names and colorful personalities. This is the story of empire told from below. The tale of Exodus 4 to 14 unfolds almost as a political cartoon. It's full of negotiation tactics and reversals and parody and dark humor, while at the same time exhibiting a certain bitter realism that makes the power scenario all too recognizable to oppressed people throughout history, which is why this story has been adopted by folks struggling at the margins, 
for more than two millennia, not least by African slaves in American fields. When Israel was in Egypt land, Oppressed so hard they could not stand. Sing it with me. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell Now, most interesting for our theme this morning is the triangle of relations in this story. Repeated refrains make clear the contestation. The slave community is the protagonist, and their agent, Moses, keeps insisting, free our people. Pharaoh and his managers and magicians, who keep trying to outduel Moses, are the evil opponents, with the cynical ruler continually hardening his heart and reneging on agreements. But the third character of this drama is nature herself, as represented in the series of plagues. We could argue that this tale is about nature versus empire, about creator taking sides with slaves and then deploying the creation in order to counterbalance what are otherwise vastly unequal power relations in this archetypal struggle. Does that make sense? Recall the setup in the few, first few chapters of Exodus for this showdown. Israel's forced labor in Egypt consists of building store cities into which the empire's plunder and the tribute of subject peoples was gathered. They set taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor, Exodus 1.11. The struggle begins in chapter 5 when Moses makes his first ask of the ruler. They just want to practice their own ceremonies out in the wilderness. Moses says, sounding reasonable. After all, this dude, Moses, reputedly grew up in the royal house, so he knows how to speak their language. But any concession to slaves is considered unreasonable to Pharaoh. So is met with an increase in repression and a doubling of the workload. Remember the story in Exodus 5? Exactly the script that oppressed people have faced from rulers down through the ages over and over and over. And then, of course, the Hebrews turn on Moses, complaining that his little freedom movement is actually making things harder for them. Oh, Dr. King knew all about those classic dynamics. Two phrases in this story capture both its hopefulness and its despair. The liberation movement is animated in chapter 6 by Yahweh's attentiveness to the bitter realities of domination. God hears the groan the visceral moaning of a people under siege, and sets about honoring ancient promises of freedom. But verse 9 is poignant. The people can't hear the call to mobilize because they're just too beat down and their spirits have been broken by cruelty. That's a pretty contemporary story. This impasse, however, is broken by the divine strategy 
God will instruct creation herself to rise up against the empire on behalf of the downtrodden. So begins the great series of ten plagues, winding through the conflict like a labyrinth, slowly escalating the stakes. The first sign of nature's protest is the Nile turning to blood. Now there have been countless attempts to explain the phenomenon scientifically. One theory holds that rising temperatures led the Nile to slow and shrink, making it hospitable to toxic freshwater algae. A bacterium known as burgundy blood algae has been documented widely around the globe. It multiplies drastically in slow-moving water streams and then dies, leaving a red stain in the water. It's then further speculated that an ecological cascade of consequences may have ensued. Any blight on the water that killed fish would have also caused frogs to leave the river and probably die, plague two. The lack of frogs in the river would have allowed the insect populations to increase while the rotting corpses of fish and frogs would have attracted even more insects, plagues three and four. Biting flies in the region could in turn transmit livestock disease which could park, uh, spark epizootic epidemics in animals and humans, plagues five and six. You following? Now, I'm not particularly moved by efforts among hermeneutic conservatives to find scientific proof for biblical miracles. <laughs> and there's plenty of it on the web. The power of these stories as archetype and myth is often lost in such modernist attempts to demonstrate their scientific veracity. However, I was at first bemused and then intrigued when I stumbled across this article in the prestigious Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine a decade ago. What caught my attention was this assertion uh, from the abstract. We propose, we the authors, that the root causes to have been an aberrant El Nino Southern Oscillation teleconnection that brought unseasonable and progressive climate warming along the ancient Mediterranean littoral, including the coast of biblical Egypt, which in turn initiated the serial catastrophes of biblical sequence, in particular arthropod-born and arthropod-caused diseases. Damn. <laughs> in other words, their unifying causative theory of Old Testament plagues was climate change. Moreover, these authors see public health implications for the possibility of present-day recurrence of similar catastrophes and their impact upon essential public services. Wow. Now, I don't believe this should prevent us from seeing the powerful symbolics of protest in these narratives. Uh, for example, check this out in chapter 9. The sixth plague commences with Moses reaching into a kiln, the work site of Hebrew slave brickwork, right? Reaches into the kiln, takes ashes, and throws them at Pharaoh, a demonstration of defiant repudiation. Moreover, the ashes then spread over the empire like acid rain, as if to suggest that oppression ultimately makes everybody sick. Plagues seven to nine escalate the struggle to virtually cosmic proportions as negotiations between Moses and Pharaoh get more hardball. I love this piece of community art that was done on the plagues. Fiery hail increases the pressure on the ruling class 
from the heavens, causing a king to begin to soften his public line. For the first time, Pharaoh admits, we have a problem, but quickly retrenches his position. Locusts, that traditional pestilence turned into superstorm, then ratchets up pressure from the land. Pharaoh is getting squeezed from above and below, but refuses to yield, so typical of autocrats then and now. Note that Creator conjures the west wind to drive out the locusts. Natural forces are used to restore as well as to inflict in this story. And then darkness falls, a foreboding harbinger of the finale to come. A spectacle that will, a millennium later, also mark the execution of that descendant of Hebrews on Calvary's hill under a different, even crueler empire. The rhetoric describing this penultimate plague of darkness is so evocative. We are told, Exodus 10, 23, and the people could not see one another, and for three days they could not move from where they were. Wow, talk about the symbolics of collective blindness and denial and paralysis so fitting to the culture of empire. This sparks the final showdown, succinctly captured in Pharaoh's death threat, which Moses takes as his green light to get the hell out of Dodge. You said it, boss. I'm gone. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.